beautifully with our text of Scripture this morning. And I'll invite you to open your Bible with me to Mark chapter 15. Uh, This morning we are in verses 22 through 39. Our sermon title is Black Friday. And, of course, that's a slight reference to... uh, uh, the Friday of last week, the day after Thanksgiving, where so many go out and do that uh, shopping, and by now many of us have seen the videos and heard stories of some of the uh, uh, the uh, craziness that goes on out there. When we were in Michigan, I was looking through the sales papers and came across something at Office Depot, a, a office desk, and Howard Ayers has been offering to remodel my office for so long, and saw this desk on sale. It's normally $450 and can get it for like 150 And I called up Howard and I said, Howard, uh, I'm up in Michigan and uh, uh, it'd be nice if you could go out and pick this desk up for me. And so he graciously agreed. And while I believe there's probably not that many people there at Office Depot here in Winchester on Friday, I still like to try to imagine in my mind uh, a scene of Howard going into the store with all these mobs of people and Howard kind of pushing and shoving people and and putting somebody in a headlock, just trying to get trying to get my desk for me. And well, that might not have been the case. I don't know, Nancy. Did he come on with a black eye or anything, bloody nose or nothing? Well, I, I still like to kind of try to imagine that scene of Howard Ayers uh, out in that craziness. But we we hear those stories and see those videos, and we might be tempted to think, well, that's as low as as humanity can get uh, with with that uh, actions going on. But reality today in our scripture, we're going to see the darkness of human depravity on its fullest display at the crucifixion. But as dark as that day was, literally and spiritually, the light of the gospel somehow found its way into a man's heart. So let us look upon his humble sacrifice and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It is only by looking at the cross can we rightly come to that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I want to invite you to stand with me if you're able to this morning in reverence for the reading of God's holy word. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 15 starting at verse 22. Mark writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And dividing up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. The scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, it is such a blessing to be in your house today to open up this word. and Father, to do so knowing we are reading the very word of God, that you have inspired these words through the pen of Mark so that his audience and ultimately us today can open this and read a, a message from God himself about the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. And I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, would illuminate these words in our minds and in our hearts today, that we might better understand and might better embrace the gospel of Christ as reflected through the crucifixion. Father, speak through me. Uh, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. We have seen that Mark's Gospel is building to this moment that we are at today. We have seen that Jesus indeed is a man like no other. In his actions, in his words, his miracles, and all the things that he did in his ministry, he was a man like no other. But he began to teach his disciples that he had a mission like no other. Jesus predicted three times to his disciples that this day, this Black Friday, was coming. Here we see the Son of God came to reconcile man to God, and that involved a painful price. But yet when we read the Gospels, we, we see not so much an interest in the physical suffering of Christ as we do in the mockery of Jesus. And so the first thing we notice in this scene Mark paints for us is the rejection of God's Son. That sin had blinded men to his true identity and his true destiny. First of all, he was scorned by his punishers, the Roman soldiers. They saw him as just another weakling to be oppressed. Verse 22, it says, They brought him. Think about that. Who is the him they are referring to? It's, it's Jesus. He is the one who has healed the sick. He is the one who has cast out demons. He is the one who walked on the water. He is the one who calmed the storm by one word, peace. He is the one who raised the dead back to life and they brought him. The only reason they were able to bring him anywhere is that he allowed himself to be brought. They brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull, as Steve referenced earlier in our prayer time. Golgotha might have received its name, some speculate, by the shape of the hill or Others speculate that maybe it was a, a place of execution and, and a popular place, and so it received that name. And not for sure why, but Mark translates it for us here. It's place of a skull. Verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, which was a sedative used to deaden pain, and he refused it. He was going to drink the, the wrath of his father's uh, justice with full faculties amongst himself. In verse 24 it says, and they crucified him. Very simplistic statements, 
The gospel writers make no effort to to sensationalize the, the brutality of what was taking place there. And many of us have seen movies like The Passion of the Christ, and, I, and it is an accurate depiction of what crucifixion really did look like, and, and the suffering and the anguish. And, uh, there was a word that was invented, excruciating, uh, to de- describe how bad uh, a pain crucifixion was. And, but the Gospel writers, and here Mark specifically, just says they crucified him. His audience was well aware of what crucifixion was. If he was writing to Roman Christians in Rome, they had seen and heard of crucifixion. They crucified him. Remember, who is him? It is Jesus, the Son of God. They crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them, what each man should take. They were basically rolling dice to figure out what of his possessions that they would take home with themselves. Clothing, as expensive as it is today, back in antiquity, it was even more priceful, more pricey. Couldn't just go down to local Walmart and, and purchase some, some duds. You had to make everything by hand, and so clothes were very expensive. And So they were rolling dice and they were gambling to see who could take the last of his possessions. As Jesus hung on the cross, either completely naked or just covered by slight loincloth they were gambling for his clothing and it was the third hour when they crucified him literally about nine o'clock in the morning according to their reckoning of time the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the jews and it was common for one who was crucified to have the charge nailed to the cross so that those passing by would understand this is why this man is hanging here the inscription read the king of the jews which was what's Pilate asked him back in the beginning of the chapter, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, I am. As Pilate spoke to the crowd, he says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They said, No, give us Barabbas instead. And then Pilate says, What should I do with this one who is called king of the Jews? Then when the Roman soldiers were mocking him and beating him, they acclaimed him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. It was in content and with disdain that the Romans put this sign on the cross as they scorned him, seeing him as a weakling, punishing him. He was also scorned by the populace that day. We read in verses 27 and following, the crowd saw him as just another would-be deliverer who had failed in their expectations. The crowd was very fickle. We talked about when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, The crowd shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna! They thought he was coming to conquer Rome, not be crucified by Rome. It's not what they wanted out of a Messiah. Verse 27 says they crucified two robbers with him. The word robbers could be used to describe uh, the same term that Barabbas was, an insurrectionist, a, a zealot, and Quite possibly they were associates of Barabbas. Remember, he had been sentenced to die and Jesus had taken his place. So quite possibly two of Barabbas' companions crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Reminds us back in chapter 10 when James and John came to Jesus and said, when you enter your glory, we want to sit on your right and on your left. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. 
Because glory, the pathway to glory, involves suffering and involves sacrifice. Ironically, we see Jesus crucified with two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. The moment of his glory, there indeed was suffering and there was sacrifice. Verse 29 says, Those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him. Literally, they were blaspheming him. They were accusing him earlier of blasphemy, of claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Son of the Blessed One. They accused him of blasphemy, but here they are actually blaspheming him. They were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They had misunderstood, misquoted, taking out of context what he had earlier said. He had said what he said in reference to his body, did he not? Disciples understood it following his resurrection. The temple, the presence of God, was now no longer to be in a building. It was embodied in Jesus himself. And they said, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. But ironically, if he were to come down from the cross, it, he would not be able to replace the temple. Instead of being locked into a building, he was now the dynamic presence of God. And they said, save yourself to them. That was, the, that was the height of power and authority. If he could save himself, then he could save us too. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a strong Messiah. But there he hung on the cross, defeated. And they scorned him for that. It's also scorned by the priests, the very ones who were supposed to understand what the Messiah was. And if anybody could grasp the identity of Jesus, the Messiah, we would think it would be the religious leaders, the theological experts of the day. But they scorned him also. They saw him as just another would-be competitor. The chief priests and the scribes, they were a familiar enemy to Jesus. We've seen it all throughout his ministry. They have confronted him. They've challenged him. They wanted to rid themselves of him. He was a threat to their man-made establishments, to their authority, to their religious box. Jesus didn't fit inside that. And in their pride and in their anger, they wanted him destroyed. And how they stood at the feet of the cross thinking that they had indeed won. And they mocked him in verse 31 and following and said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Think of the irony in that statement. He saved others. He cannot save himself. That's true. Because if he saved himself, he would be unable to save others. So in the very words that they were mocking him, they were actually confessing truth. Had he saved himself, he would be unable to save others. He saved others because he would not save himself. They said, come down from the cross, verse 32. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so we may see and believe. I've heard people say that before. I, I can't believe in a God I cannot see. Now, if he would just open the clouds and stick his head out and say, hey, here I am, then, then I would believe. But God has so chosen faith to be the vehicle 
through which we relate to him trusting in him trusting in his word that was that was where Adam and Eve failed in the garden was it not as Randy preached about last week God spoke God gave his word they did not trust God's word and fell into sin now the only way to be restored to God is trusting in his word they said we want to see and believe we need empirical evidence we want a God who fits within our concepts we want to wrap our minds around God. We want to be God. That's basically what people are saying. I want physical proof to believe in God. They're basically saying, I want God to conform to my ideas. Instead of imagining there is something beyond what I can understand that exists in reality. Come down and from the cross we'll see and believe. Their hardened hearts refuse to believe the truth. Reminds me of the parable back in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the story? They both died. and The poor man, the beggar, was taken to heaven and the rich man was sent to hell. And He begged to go back to earth and warn his brothers so that they would not end up there. Luke 16, verse 30 and 31. He said, No father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, the scriptures, if they don't listen to the word of God as been revealed, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Interestingly enough, Jesus would do that in three more days. And the chief priests, many of them still refused to even believe then. He was scorned by the priests. But yet God has told us of the sufficiency of his word. We are saved by faith in trusting in the revealed word of God. And the priests were too hardened by sin to see that. Scorned by the punishers and the populace and the priests and finally scorned by the prisoners as verse 32 says. And those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Now, Heath read the scripture from Luke, and Luke details that eventually one of those criminals had a change of heart. But initially, as Jesus hung there, even they were insulting him. They saw him as just another guilty scoundrel. Well, he's no better than we are. Look at him hanging there on the cross, completely rejected by all of those who were there that day. Blindness, they could not see what was right in front of them the whole time reminds me of several years ago they came out with those posters that had kind of all these different colors and they were all swirled together and we were told if you just look at a certain way then you can see an image in there do y'all remember those things I could never do those I could sit there and stare at one of those posters for like five ten minutes and just see nothing and everybody's like, well, yeah, if you look at it the right way, it's a porpoise. And I'm like, I don't see it. And somebody could walk up in five seconds, oh, look at that porpoise. And I'm like, how do you do that? They said, well, you just got to somehow, you got you to look through the picture. And I'm like, how do I do that? I'm not Clark Kent. How do, how do you look through the picture? I could never see. And as Jesus hung on the cross, for whatever reason, there were so many that just could not see the truth of what was in front of them the whole time. He was rejected as God's son. But when things appeared to be their blackest, 
we see the recognition of God's Son. That only through the cross is He truly revealed as the Son of God. In verse 33, the skies testified to who He was. It says, When the sixth hour came, literally noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to 3 p.m., utter darkness. Now people have tried to explain that away. Maybe it was a solar eclipse. The only problem with that, it was Passover. That means it was a full moon. can't have a solar eclipse in a full moon. Physically impossible. Well, maybe it was a sandstorm and all these things. No, it was a supernatural manifestation. The presence of God showed up in judgment. It was divine judgment. It was complete irony. You see that the one who had created the lights the one who had said, let there be light, and there was light. The light of the world now hung in the darkness, cursed. It's a reminder to us, actually, back in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt, and God sent Moses to deliver them. And, and through a series of plagues, God judged the Egyptians, and the ninth plague was darkness. Darkness for three days, followed by the last plague, the death of the firstborn. And ironically, as darkness descended on that land, a sign of God's judgment against sin, God's wrath being poured out on His Son, the firstborn, was to die, the Passover lamb, to bring salvation to His people. The skies testified that Jesus was the Son of God. The Scripture testified also in verses 34 through 36. It says, At the ninth hour at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice so that all could hear Him saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, Aramaic, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read that and we're troubled by that. And we say, now Jesus is God. Why is he speaking to God? He's actually quoting Scripture. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, which says that very thing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus felt the complete separation from the Father because of sin. As Jesus absorbed the sin of all humanity there on the cross, for the first time in all eternity, God the Son felt His relationship with the Father completely severed. And the only way He could think of to describe that was to quote Scripture, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But another way to understand that is when someone quotes the first verse of a psalm, it's meant to incorporate the entirety of the psalm. For example, if somebody came to you and, and they began to say, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You immediately picture the whole 23rd psalm, don't you? And you might even in your mind begin to go over those words and come to the very last statement, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That because the Lord is my shepherd, I have eternal life. Well, Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then by the end of the psalm, there is a statement of trusting in God to deliver. 
That at this moment, God, I feel forsaken, but even in this darkness, I trust that you will deliver me because I trust in you. As Jesus hung on the cross and felt the weight of sin and the curse of sin and the wrath of the Father, absorbing that in our place, as He felt that separation being forsaken, He still ultimately trusted in the goodness and the justice of His Father. Verse 35 says, When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, He's he's calling for Elijah. They had perhaps misunderstood what he was saying. and Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink and said, Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. Now, some have speculated and maybe they were doing this uh, uh, to comfort him, give him a drink. Uh, some have speculated maybe they were, they were doing this out of cruelty, you know, mocking him. Let's see if Elijah will come. But maybe it was just curiosity. You see, there was a Jewish folklore that, that believed that, that even though the Bible doesn't say this, that they, they had a folklore that said Elijah would come and show up whenever a, a righteous person was suffering and Elijah would come, the Old Testament prophet, and, and, and deliver them. Quite possibly out of curiosity, instead of trusting in the Scriptures, they were trusting in folklore and fairy tales. How many people in our culture today have these misconceptions and these ideas and, and, and these rumors and, and things that they hear about God and about Jesus and they would rather believe and trust in those things than to believe and trust in what God has revealed? in his scriptures indeed the scriptures testify that Jesus was the son of God the sacrifice also testified verse 37 Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last you know this was kind of unusual because crucifixion was meant to drain the individual of their strength it often took two to three days before a person eventually died they died typically of asphyxiation they they were smothered to death, could not breathe. And it took a long time for that to happen. And typically men, as they began to die, would weaken and weaken and weaken. But here Jesus gives a loud cry. He gives a shout, almost as if it's a victorious, a triumphant shout. And he breathes his last. He dies. There have been people that speculate well, the resurrection can be explained because Jesus didn't really die. Which, pardon my language, it's stupid to, to say that. Here is Roman soldiers whose very livelihood was made upon death. And we read in our follow-up scriptures here in verses 44 and following that the centurion testified to Pilate he indeed was dead. No way Jesus did not survive. He breathed his last. The breath of life was gone. And in that moment, verse 38 says, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. The veil in the temple, there were two different veils. There was one that separated the court of the Jews from the holy place. Only priests could enter into behind that veil but then there was another veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where only the high priest could go in there and that was only once a year on the day of atonement to sprinkle blood 
as a sign of, of sacrifice, as a sign of, 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 of substitution so that God would have forgiveness on His people. I believe it was that curtain that was torn. That no longer was man separated from God, but man had full access to God. And God could come and reside within the hearts of His people. That the sacrificial system was done. The old covenant was done. The new covenant had arrived. Jesus had fulfilled everything that the Old Testament had required. That was done. No more sacrifices were needed. No animal sacrifice ever tore the veil. It was only the sacrifice of Jesus. It is finished. He died once for all. The worthy, perfect sacrifice. The temple curtain was torn same word used back in chapter 1 at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended from heaven the heavens were torn and the Holy Spirit resided upon him notice that it says here that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom why is that important? it demonstrates who tore the veil it wasn't torn from the bottom up it was a large curtain and it was torn from the top down to the bottom God rent that curtain a supernatural display that God was satisfied the sacrifice was made the veil of the temple was torn the sacrifice testified who Jesus was finally the soldier testified in verse 39 arguably the, the darkest heart that was there that day Think about it. this man was not Jewish. He was he was Roman. He was not raised in this teaching of the scriptures of the Old Testament. Had little to no concept of the Jewish God. Man who made his living, who, who rose in the ranks, not by going to some academy and graduating as an officer. Roman centurions, you had to earn it from the bottom up. A man who had spent his life killing and organizing death and execution, a man who was no stranger to making others suffer and making a living off the suffering of others. This man who had no concept that we would understand of God. Verse 39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last. There was something about the death of Jesus that struck that centurion. There was something different, something unique about this man. It was quite possible that this centurion was there when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was most likely there when Pilate had tried him and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Quite possibly there as Jesus was flogged and scourged. Quite possibly there as they placed the crown of thorns on his brow. And as he was mocked and as he was beaten and spit upon, quite possibly he was there when they laid him on that cross and they drove those nails, those spikes into his wrists, into his feet. That man was there. and felt nothing 
about all that was taking place. But when he saw the way he breathed his last, something about the death of Jesus awakened in this darkened heart the light and the glory of Christ shone in that man's heart, leading him to testify truly. Amen. This man was the Son of God. In Mark's Gospel, we have seen Jesus described as that in verse 1 of chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we as the reader, we already know right up front, hey, this is who Jesus is. And it's baptism. The voice calls from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Later on in chapter 1, Jesus confronts a, a man who's demon-possessed, and the demons cry out, We know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus tells him, Shut up. And all throughout Mark's Gospel, the transfiguration, the voice again says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. All throughout Mark's gospel, the Father and the demons testify and confess Jesus is the Son of God. But for the first time in Mark's gospel, a human being speaks those words. This is the Son of God. And it was the Roman centurion, a Gentile soldier, an executioner, a man who put to death the most innocent person who ever walked the face of this earth. Something about the cross opened this man's eyes. Look upon his humble sacrifice. Confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Through this picture, Mark paints for us here that Jesus has fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Mark doesn't explicitly say this, but implicitly, we see these references. Listen to these things. Psalm 22, which is known as the Psalm of the Cross, as you'll understand here in a minute. Psalm 22:16. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and my, for my clothing they cast lots. And once again, verses 6 through 8, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Psalm 69, 21 says, And for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Amos chapter 8 verse 9 it will come about in that day declares the Lord God that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight finally these words from Isaiah chapter 53 starting at verse 10 but the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. 
Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and he interceded for the transgressors. For Mark, the crucifixion of Jesus is the enthronement of the king. All throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has told people, do not say that I am the Messiah. Do not tell anyone about this. Do not try to reveal my identity. And we have scratched our heads and we have said, why would Jesus tell people that? Why would Jesus not want others to know he is the Messiah, he is the Christ? Because without the cross, he could not be the Messiah. It is only through the revelation of the cross that the fullness of his identity is revealed. Only as the suffering servants, only as the substitutionary atonement could his true revelation of being the Messiah be known. And this centurion, without any background knowledge, gazed upon the cross, saw the way this man died, and said truly this man is the son of God the cross was not failure but fulfillment the cross was not weakness no the cross is power the power of love that restrained him Jesus could have come down from that cross Jesus could have wiped out those soldiers, those people, those priests. Jesus could have removed himself from that cross as he was tempted to do by Satan earlier in his Gospel of Mark. But it was the power of love that restrained him. His love, ladies and gentlemen, for you and for me on that blackest of days Jesus hung upon the cross and died so that you may have life so that your sins might be forgiven so that he would become sin and you might become the righteousness of God in him and that transaction is made not by effort, but by faith. By trusting in and believing in Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And He died in my place so that I may be forgiven. Let's pray together.